Section 16 of The Natural History, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. The Natural History, Volume 3, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 16. Chapter 10. The Trees of Syria. The Pistachia, the Cotana, the Damascena, and the Mina. In addition to the palm, Syria has several trees that are peculiar to itself. Among the nut-trees there is the Pistachia, well known among us. It is said that, taken either in food or drink, the kernel of this nut is a specific against the bite of serpents. Among figs, too, there are those known as Caresia, together with some smaller ones of a similar kind, the name of which is Cotana. There is a plum, too, which grows upon Mount Damascus, as also that known as the Mixa. These last two are, however, now naturalised in Italy. In Egypt, too, they make a kind of wine from the Mixa. Chapter 11. The Cedar trees which have on them the fruit of three years at once. Phoenicia, too, produces a small cedar which bears a strong resemblance to the juniper. Of this tree there are two varieties, the one found in Lycia, the other in Phoenicia. The difference is in the leaf, the one in which it is hard, sharp and prickly, being known as the oxycedros, a branchy tree and rugged with knots. The other kind is more esteemed for its powerful odour. The small cedar produces a fruit the size of a grain of myrrh, and of a sweetish taste. There are two kinds of larger cedar also. The one that blossoms bears no fruit, while on the other hand the one that bears fruit has no blossom, and the fruit as it falls is being continually replaced by fresh. The seed of this tree is similar to that of the cypress. Some persons give this tree the name of Cedrolates. The resin produced from it is very highly praised, and the wood of it lasts for ever, for which reason it is that they have long been in the habit of using it for making the statues of the gods. In a temple at Rome there is a statue of Apollo Socianus in cedar, originally brought from Seleucia. There is a tree similar to the cedar found also in Arcadia, and there is a shrub that grows in Phrygia known as the Cedrus. Chapter 12. The Terebinth Syria, too, produces the terebinth, the male tree of which bears no fruit, and the female consists of two different varieties. One of these bears a red fruit, the size of a lentil, while the other is pale and ripens at the same period as the grape. This fruit is not larger than a bean, is of a very agreeable smell, and sticky and resinous to the touch. About Ida, in Troas, and in Macedonia, this tree is short and shrubby, but at Damascus in Syria it is found of a very considerable size. Its wood is remarkably flexible, and continues sound to a very advanced age. It is black and shining. The blossoms appear in clusters, like those of the olive tree, but are of a red colour. The leaves are dense and closely packed. 
It produces follicles, too, from which issues certain insects like gnats, as also a kind of resinous liquid which oozes from the bark. Chapter 13. The Shumuk Tree The male shumuk tree of Syria is productive, but the female is barren. The leaf resembles that of the elm, though it is a little longer and has a downy surface. The footstalks of the leaves lie always alternately in opposite directions, and the branches are short and slender. This tree is used in the preparation of white skins. The seed, which strongly resembles a lentil in appearance, turns red with the grape. It is known by the name of ross, and forms a necessary ingredient in various medicaments. Chapter 14. The Trees of Egypt. The Fig Tree of Alexandria. Egypt, too, has many trees which are not to be found elsewhere, and the kind of fig more particularly, which for this reason has been called the Egyptian fig. In leaf this tree resembles the mulberry tree, as also in size and general appearance. It bears fruit not upon branches, but upon the trunk itself. The fig is remarkable for its extreme sweetness, and has no seeds in it. This tree is also remarkable for its fruitfulness, which, however, can only be ensured by making incisions in the fruit with hooks of iron, for otherwise it will not come to maturity. But when this has been done, it may be gathered within four days, immediately upon which another shoots up in its place. Hence it is that in the year it produces seven abundant crops, and throughout all the summer there is an abundance of milky juice in the fruit. Even if the incisions are not made, the fruit will shoot afresh four times during the summer, the new fruit supplanting the old, and forcing it off before it has ripened. The wood, which is of a very peculiar nature, is reckoned among the most useful known. When cut down, it is immediately plunged into standing water, such being the means employed for drying it. At first it sinks to the bottom, after which it begins to float and in a certain length of time the additional moisture sucks it dry, which has the effect of penetrating and soaking all other kinds of wood. It is a sign that it is fit for use when it begins to float. Chapter 15. The Fig Tree of Cyprus The fig tree that grows in Crete, and is known there as the Cyprian fig, bears some resemblance to the preceding one, for it bears fruit upon the trunk of the tree, and upon the branches as well, when they have attained a certain degree of thickness. This tree, however, sends forth buds without any leaves, but similar in appearance to a root. The trunk of the tree is similar to that of the poplar, and the leaves to those of the elm. It produces four crops in the year, and germinates the same number of times, but its green fruit will not ripen unless an incision is made in it to let out the milky juice. The sweetness of the fruit and the appearance of the inside are in all respects similar to those of the fig, and in size it is about as large as a sorb apple. Chapter 16. The Carob Tree Similar to this is the carob tree, by the Ionians known as the Seronia, which in a similar manner bears fruit from the trunk, this fruit being known by the name of the Siliqua, or pod. For this reason, committing a manifest error, some persons have called it the Egyptian fig, 
it being the fact that this tree does not grow in Egypt, but in Syria and Ionia, in the vicinity, too, of Cnidos, and in the island of Rhodes. It is always covered with leaves, and bears a white flower with a very powerful odour. It sends forth shoots at the lower part, and is consequently quite yellow on the surface, as the young suckers deprive the trunk of the requisite moisture. When the fruit of the preceding year is gathered about the rising of the dog-star, fresh fruit immediately makes its appearance, after which the tree blossoms, while the constellation of Arcturus is above the horizon, and the winter imparts nourishment to the fruit. Chapter 17. The Persian Tree. In what trees the fruits germinate the one below the other? Egypt, too, produces another tree of a peculiar description, the Persian tree, similar in appearance to the pear tree, but retaining its leaves during the winter. This tree produces without intermission, for if the fruit is pulled to-day, fresh fruit will make its appearance to-morrow. The time for ripening is while the Etesian winds prevail. The fruit of this tree is more oblong than a pear, but is enclosed in a shell, and a rind of a grassy colour, like the almond. But what is found within, instead of being a nut as in the almond, is a plum, differing from the almond in being shorter and quite soft. This fruit, although particularly inviting for its luscious sweetness, is productive of no injurious effects. The wood, for its goodness, solidity and blackness, is in no respect inferior to that of the lotus. People have been in the habit of making statues of it. The wood of the tree which we have mentioned as the balanus, although very durable, is not so highly esteemed as this, as it is knotted and twisted in the greater part. Hence it is only employed for the purposes of shipbuilding. Chapter 18. The Cucus On the other hand, the wood of the cucus is held in very high esteem. It is similar in nature to the palm, as its leaves are similarly used for the purposes of texture. It differs from it, however, in spreading out its arms in large branches. The fruit, which is of a size large enough to fill the hand, is of a tawny colour, and recommends itself by its juice, which is a mixture of sweet and rough. The seed in the inside is large and of remarkable hardness, and turners use it for making curtain rings. The kernel is sweet while fresh, but when dried it becomes hard to a most remarkable degree, so much so that it can only be eaten after being soaked in water for several days. The wood is beautifully mottled with circling veins, for which reason it is particularly esteemed among the Persians. Chapter 19. The Egyptian Thorn No less esteemed, too, in the same country is a certain kind of thorn, though only the black variety, its wood being imperishable, in water even, a quality which renders it particularly valuable for making the sides of ships. On the other hand, the white kinds will rot very rapidly. It has sharp prickly thorns on the leaves even, and bears its seeds in pods. They are employed for the same purposes as gulls in the preparation of leather. The flower, too, has a pretty effect, when made into garlands, and is extremely useful in medicinal preparations. A gum also distils from this tree, but the principal merit that it possesses is that when it is cut down it will grow again within three years. It grows in the vicinity of Thebes, 
where we also find the querios, the Persian tree, and the olive. The spot that produces it is a piece of woodland, distant three hundred stadia from the Nile, and is watered by springs of its own. Here we find, too, the Egyptian plum tree, not much unlike the thorn last mentioned, with a fruit similar to the medlar, and which ripens in the winter. This tree never loses its leaves. The seed in the fruit is of a considerable size, but the flesh of it, by reason of its quality and the great abundance in which it grows, affords quite a harvest to the inhabitants of those parts. After cleaning it, they subject it to pressure, and then make it up into cakes for keeping. There was formerly a woodland district in the vicinity of Memphis, with trees of such enormous size that three men could not span one with their arms. One of these trees is remarkable, not for its fruit or any particular use that it is, but for the singular phenomenon that it presents. In appearance it strongly resembles a thorn, and has leaves which have all the appearance of wings, which fall immediately the branch is touched by any one, and then immediately shoot again. Chapter 20. Nine Kinds of Gum. The Soccer Cola. It is universally agreed that the best gum is that produced from the Egyptian thorn. It is of variegated appearance, of azure colour, clean, free from all admixture of bark, and adheres to the teeth. The price at which it sells is three denarii per pound. That produced from the bitter almond tree and the cherry is of an inferior kind, and that which is gathered from the plum tree is the worst of all. The vine, too, produces a gum, which is of the greatest utility in healing the sores of children, while that which is sometimes found on the olive tree is used for the toothache. Gum is also found on the elm upon Mount Coricus, in Cilicia, and upon the juniper, but it is good for nothing. Indeed, the gum of the elm found there is apt to breed gnats. From the Socacola, also, such as the name of a certain tree, a gum exudes that is remarkably useful to painters and medical men. It is similar to incense dust in appearance, and for those purposes the white kind is preferable to the red. The price of it is the same as that mentioned above. Chapter 21. The Papyrus. The Use of Paper when it was first invented. We have not as yet taken any notice of the marsh plants, nor yet of the shrubs that grow upon the banks of rivers. Before quitting Egypt, however, we must make some mention of the nature of the papyrus, seeing that all the usages of civilised life depend on such a remarkable degree upon the employment of paper, at all events the remembrance of past events. M. Varro informs us that paper owes its discovery to the victorious career of Alexander the Great, at the time when Alexandria in Egypt was founded by him, before which period paper had not been used, the leaves of the palm having been employed for writing at an earlier period, and after that the bark of certain trees. In succeeding ages, public documents were inscribed on sheets of lead, while private memoranda were impressed upon linen cloths, or else engraved on tablets of wax. Indeed, we find it stated in Homer that tablets were employed for this purpose even before the time of the Trojan War. It is generally supposed, too, that the country which that poet speaks of as Egypt was not the same that it is at present understood by that name. For the Sebenitic and the Saitic gnomes, on which all papyrus is produced, have been added since his time by the alluvian of the Nile. 
Indeed, he himself has stated that the main land was a day and a night's sail from the island of Pharos, which island at the present day is united by a bridge to the city of Alexandria. In later times, a rivalry having sprung up between King Ptolemy and King Eumenes in reference to their respective libraries, Ptolemy prohibited the export of papyrus, upon which, as Varro relates, parchment was invented for a similar purpose at Pergamus. After this, the use of that commodity, by which immortality is ensured to man, became universally known. Chapter 22. The Mode of Making Paper Papyrus grows either in the marshes of Egypt or in the sluggish waters of the river Nile, when they have overflowed and are lying stagnant, in pools that do not exceed a couple of cubits in depth. The root lies obliquely, and is about the thickness of one's arm. The section of the stalk is triangular, and it tapers gracefully upwards towards the extremity, being not more than ten cubits at most in height, very much like a thyrsus in shape. It has a head on the top which has no seed in it, and indeed is of no use whatever except as a flower employed to crown the statues of the gods. The natives use the roots by way of wood, not only for firing, but for various other domestic purposes as well. From the papyrus itself they construct boats also, and of the outer coat they make sails and mats, as well as cloths, besides coverlets and ropes. They chew it also both raw and boiled, though they swallow the juice only. The papyrus grows in Syria also, on the borders of the same lake around which grows the sweet-scented calamus, and King Antiochus used to employ the productions of that country solely as cordage for naval purposes, for the use of spartum had not then become commonly known. More recently it has been understood that a papyrus grows in the river Euphrates, in the vicinity of Babylon, from which a similar kind of paper may easily be produced. Still, however, up to the present time, the Parthians have preferred to impress their characters upon cloths. Chapter 23. The Nine Different Kinds of Paper Paper is made from the papyrus by splitting it with a needle into very thin leaves, due care being taken that they should be as broad as possible. That of the first quality is taken from the centre of the plant, and so in regular succession according to the order of division. Hieratica was the name that was anciently given to it, from the circumstance that it was entirely reserved for the religious books. In later times, through a spirit of adulation, it received the name of Augusta, just as that of second quality was called Liviana, from his wife Livia, the consequence of which was that the name Hieratica came to designate that of only third-rate quality. The paper of the next quality was called Amphitheatrica, from the locality of its manufacture. The skilful manufactory that was established by Phanius at Rome was in the habit of receiving this last kind, and there, by a very careful process of insertion, it was rendered much finer. So much, though, that from being a common sort he made it a paper of first-rate quality, and gave his own name to it while that which was not subjected to this additional process retained its original name of Amphitheatrica. Next to this is the Saitic paper, so called from the city of that name, where it is manufactured in very large quantities, though of cuttings of inferior quality. 
The tiniotic paper, so called from a place in the vicinity, is manufactured from the materials that lie nearer to the outside skin. It is sold not according to its quality, but by weight only. As to the paper, that is known as emporetia. It is quite useless for writing upon, and is only employed for wrapping up other paper, and as a covering for various articles of merchandise, whence its name as being used by dealers. After this comes the bark of the papyrus, the outer skin of which bears a strong resemblance to the bulrush, and is solely used for making ropes, and then only for those which have to go into the water. All these various kinds of paper are made upon a table moistened with Nile water, a liquid which, when in a muddy state, has the peculiar qualities of glue. This table being first inclined, the leaves of papyrus are laid upon it lengthwise, as long indeed as the papyrus will admit of, the jagged edges being cut off at either end, after which a cross-layer is placed over it, the same way, in fact, that hurdles are made. When this is done, the leaves are pressed close together, and then dried in the sun, after which they are united to one another, the best sheets being always taken first, and the inferior ones added afterwards. There are never more than twenty of these sheets to a roll. CHAPTER Twenty Four: THE MODE OF TESTING THE GOODNESS OF PAPER there is a great difference in the breadth of the various kinds of paper. That of best quality is thirteen fingers wide, while the heretica is two fingers less. The faniana is ten fingers wide, and that known as amphitheatrica one less. The saetic is of still smaller breadth. Indeed, it is not so wide as the mallet with which the paper is beaten. And the emporetica is particularly narrow, being not more than six fingers in breadth. In addition to the above particulars, paper is esteemed according to its fineness, its stoutness, its whiteness, and its smoothness. Claudius Caesar effected a change in that, which till then had been looked upon as being of the first quality. For the Augustan paper had been found to be so remarkably fine as to offer no resistance to the pressure of the pen. In addition to which, as it allowed the writing upon it to run through, it was continually causing apprehensions of being blotted and blurred by the writing on the other side. The remarkable transparency, too, of the paper was very unsightly to the eye. To obviate these inconveniences, a groundwork of paper was made with leaves of the second quality, over which was laid a woof, as it were, formed of leaves of the first. He increased the width also of paper, the width of the common sort being made a foot, and that of the size known as macrocolum, a cubit. Though one inconvenience was soon detected in it, for, upon a single leaf being torn in the press, more pages were apt to be spoiled than before. In consequence of the advantages above mentioned, the Claudian has come to be preferred to all other kinds of paper, though the Augustan is still used for the purposes of epistolary correspondence. The Livian, which had nothing in common with that of first quality, but was entirely of a secondary rank, still holds its former place. Chapter 25. The Peculiar Defects of Paper The roughness and inequalities in paper are smoothed down with a tooth or shell, but the writing in such places is very apt to fade. When it is thus polished, the paper does not take the ink so readily, but is of a more lustrous and shining surface. 
the water of the nile that has been originally employed in its manufacture being sometimes used without due precaution will unfit the paper for taking writing this fault however may be detected by a blow with the mallet or even by the smell when the carelessness has been extreme these spots too may be detected by the eye but the streaks that run down the middle of the leaves where they have been pasted together though they render the paper spongy and of a soaking nature can hardly ever be detected before the ink runs while the pen is forming the letters so many are the openings for fraud to be put in practice the consequence is that another labour has been added to the due preparation of paper chapter twenty six the paste used in the preparation of paper the common paper paste is made of the finest flour of wheat mixed with boiling water and some small drops of vinegar sprinkled in it for the ordinary workman's paste or gum if employed for this purpose will render the paper brittle those however who take the greatest pains boil the crumb of leavened bread and then strain off the water by the adoption of this method the paper has the fewest seams caused by the paste that lie between and is softer than the nap of linen even all kinds of paste that are used for this purpose ought not to be older or newer than one day the paper is then thinned out with a mallet after which a new layer of paste is placed upon it then the creases which are formed are again pressed out and then it undergoes the same process with the mallet as before it is thus that we have memorials preserved in the ancient handwriting of tiberius and caius gracchus which i have seen in the possession of pomponius secundus the poet a very illustrious citizen almost two hundred years since those characters were penned as for the handwriting of cicero augustus and virgil we frequently see them at the present day chapter twenty seven the books of numa there are some facts of considerable importance that make against the opinion expressed by m varro relative to the invention of paper cassius hermina a writer of very great antiquity has stated in the fourth book of his annals that cnaeus terentius the scribe while engaged in digging on his land in the janiculum came to a coffer in which numa had been buried the former king of rome and that in this coffer were also found some books of his this took place in the consulship of publius cornelius cethegus the son of lucius and of m babius tamphilus the son of quintus the interval between whose consulship and the reign of numa was five hundred and thirty-five years these books were made of paper and a thing that is more remarkable still is the fact that they lasted so many years buried in the ground in order therefore to establish a fact of such singular importance i shall here quote the words of hemina himself some persons wonder how these books could have possibly lasted so long a time this was the explanation that terentius gave in nearly the middle of the coffer there lay a square stone bound on every side with cords enveloped in wax upon this stone the books had been placed and it was through this precaution he thought that they had not rotted the books too were carefully covered with citrus leaves and it was through this in his belief that they had been protected from the attack of worms in these books were written certain doctrines relative to the pythagorean philosophy 
They were burnt by Q. Petilius, the praetor, before they treated of philosophical subjects. Piso, who had formerly been censor, relates the same facts in the first book of his commentaries, but he states in addition that there were seven books on pontifical rites, and seven on Pythagorean philosophy. Tudinatus, in his fourteenth book, says that they contained the decrees of Numa. Varro, in the seventh book of his Antiquities of Mankind, states that there were twelve in number, and Antaeus, in his second book, says that there were twelve written in Latin, on pontifical matters, and as many in Greek, containing philosophical precepts. The same author states also in his third book why it was thought proper to burn them. It is a fact acknowledged by all writers that the Sibyl brought three books to Tarquinius Superbus, of which two were burnt by herself, while the third perished by fire with the capital in the days of Scylla. In addition to these facts, Lucianus, who was three times consul, has stated that he had recently read, while governor of Lycia, a letter written upon paper, and preserved in a certain temple there, which had been written from Troy, by Sapedon, a thing that surprises me the more, if it really was the fact that even in the time of Homer, the country that we call Egypt was not in existence. And why, too, if paper was then in use, was it the custom, as it is very well known it was, to write upon leaden tablets and linen cloths? Why, too, has Homer stated that in Lycia tablets were given to Bellerophon to carry, and not a paper letter? Papyrus, for making paper, is apt to fail occasionally. Such a thing happened in the time of Emperor Tiberius, when there was so great a scarcity of paper that members of the Senate were appointed to regulate the distribution of it. Had not this been done, all the ordinary relations of life would have been completely disarranged. End of section 16. Recording by Steve Goff. February 2012.